Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things left the island and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. So hello everyone, you're all very welcome to tonight's event which focuses on the role of religion during conflict and its aftermath, how it's understood or misunderstood and why the issue of class is so often seen as a minor factor in explaining our recent history and indeed our, our present. I should say that this event has been organised as part of Good Relations Week and at its core the Good Relations agenda aims to promote better relations between what are seen as the North's two main communities as well as with the growing number of people who don't fall into either group. And without taking away from the valuable work that's going on in pockets of the North across our communities, it's our view that not enough is done to examine or critique the assumptions that underpin so much of political discourse and political practice. Like we all know that there's certainly little room in official circles for a class or materialist perspective on the challenge facing us, despite the North being as riven with class division and class conflict as anywhere else in Europe. And it's particularly in the context of sectarian headcounting, which is set to go into overdrive this week with the publication of the census results, that it's important to create spaces in which more critical perspectives can be discussed, debated and promoted. And for that reason, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Veronique Alglis from Queen's University to discuss the subject of her new book, which challenges the orthodox view on the role of religion here in the North. Uh, and with that wee bit of housekeeping done, I'll uh, leave it there and I'll hand you over to Veronique to give her initial input on the subject of tonight's discussion. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Sean. So I'll try to be uh, not too long so that we really have a time to discuss because I think this is what we like and enjoy. This book was not planned at all for me. I'm a sociologist working on religion and I work usually on new religious movement, why people do yoga meditation, why they are attracted by religion of others. And I ended up working on a, a small um, fundamentalist congregation here in Northern Ireland. And at that point, I started to write. And of course, you know, you want to really have a good solid knowledge of, you know, what other sociologists of religion have, work, have written um, about Northern Ireland and religion and Northern Ireland. And you read, you reread. And um, it was a bit like opening the bonnet of a car. You open it and you think, okay, that things, how does that work? That doesn't connect, this is not useful, this is rusty, and doesn't really, doesn't really work for me. So at that point, and it was the start of COVID, you know, so we were all locked down uh, with our obsessions, I suppose. Uh, I had the choice to say, okay, let's forget about that. You know, you close the bonnet and you write your ethnography about your congregation and this is it. But I couldn't. No, I kept the bonnet open. I think, no, I really have to just get everything out and, and just get to the bottom of it. And I suppose it's, it's also part of, yeah, what COVID does, <laughs> you know, being obsessive, I suppose. But also, um, I, I am fascinated and very interested in the politics of this region. I suppose I've become a bit part of it, you know, uh, and as, even if it's, I mean, we all would agree it's, it's exhaustive, it's exhausting, sorry. Um, well, we're, we're still in it. So I really wanted to, 
to write to, to write this book and understand what was happening. So what I wanted to do uh, is to say a few words about the problem of, of those research on religion in, in this region before talking about how the issue of class fits, you know, in this picture. And the first thing we we'll have to say, of course, you know, we all know that uh, Northern Ireland has been probably over-researched. Um, this morning, there's a student who came to see me at the end of the lecture, and she said, oh, do you know if there are any books about, you know, in sociology about the troubles? And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, there's no agreement about the causes and the dynamics of the conflict. What's interesting, of course, and not very surprising is that sociologists of religion tended to, were very prone to say, well, you know, religion is very significant or the conflict is about religion. It's a religious war for certain. It's not surprising because usually when you study something, you tend to think it's important. So sociologists of religion always think that religion is really uh, uh, significant. Um, this, this approach um, of making um, the troubles a, a religious conflict is often uh, illustrated by the quote of a sociologist, uh, Steve Bruce, who, who worked here before moving to the University of, of Aberdeen. I guess that uh, John uh, met him before. And he argued really that the Northern Irish conflict was a religious conflict. And I quote him here, he said, it was the fact that the competing populations in Ireland adhered and still adhere to competing religious traditions, which have given the conflict it's enduring and intractable quality. I think this quote is fascinating for the questions that it raises more than the answer that it gives. Actually, now you understand the metaphor of the bonnet, really. Because you think like, okay, why are religious differences between Protestants and Catholics the source of competition in Northern Ireland and not elsewhere? And secondly, how does religion reproduce social division and conflict? In other words, what does religion do Okay, and how can I, as, as a scientist, try to explore that, find what would be my methods and, my, and the evidence I need to make that case? But then you can ask, and we go back to that, but why focusing on religion and why actually in that quote, what I find interesting is the, the notion of competition. Why is there a competition? A competition about what? Why is it intractable, according to Bruce? So basically in this book, I, I argue that the significance of religion has been greatly overestimated by a number of scholars, even when actually their own data uh, does not fit with the argumentation. For example, how can you make that case when obviously the, the Republican agenda was not religious, but very much political, when actually loyalists um, and those involved in paramilitary movement were usually secularized and not, you know, church goers. Or actually when you look at even the success of Paisley and of the DUP, if you really look at the data and the evidence, you could see that it's not because of religion that it was successful. Actually, it, it, it was a bit of a problem for a part of, of the unionist communities, uh, this old religious traditional discourse from, from Paisley. And we know that the DUP had to secularize itself to establish itself as, as a main party. So. I'm not saying that necessarily the, the, the cultural and religious dimensions are not important at all, but what I'm thinking is that religion's significance derives and is connected with political, economic, and social dynamics that need to be addressed. Okay, religion is not a floating, you know, um, independent factor that has an effect. 
So how does that connect with other things? And what are those social dynamics that I'm, I'm talking about? And I think there are two major issues. The first one is sectarianism, which was, um, and it probably is still, intertwined with class relations and maintain conditions of inequalities, discrimination, in particular for members of Catholic and nationalist communities. And I found really interesting that the authors who made of the troubles a, a religious conflict, a religious issue, were so oblivious to the issue of sectarianism. They were oblivious to the fact that the reproduction of inequalities along sectarian lines could have been a factor for social mobilization and violence. And I'm not saying it, it gives legitimacy to violent action in, in what I'm saying here. Uh, I'm not saying that people didn't have a choice. It's untested. I'm just saying, you know, that it's very strange that to talk about conflict and social division, those people obliterated the issue of the reproduction of inequalities, and in particular, along sectarian lines. So sectarianism is one of those dynamics. And the second one is also class divisions, and in particular, within the Protestant and unionist communities. The, the orange system diffused class tensions, providing a sort of unite, or at least a, a drive for a united front against an other, promising also advantages. But in the 60s, as we know, there's a, a very sharp economic decline in the region. Long-term unemployment, which means that for the first time, the, the working class uh, unions communities really suffered from long-term un unemployment, uh, consider job protected by the orange states, and that provokes a crisis within unionism. And besides, you know, you could obviously argue that the, the loyalists, the, the working class communities were also living uh, in squalid conditions as much as their uh, working class counterparts in, in nationalist communities. And the existence of a surplus army of nationalist workers also makes you vulnerable to exploitation, of course, um, because yes, you may have access, a privileged access to, uh, to jobs, but you know, you can't really make a lot of waves because obviously there would be always someone to, to take your, your job. So the, the system, and it's a bit like the, the, the American racial relations, you, you only have an incremental advantage, but you hold it dear because this is all what you, you have. We now know that this is not a socialist response that predominated in that context, but unfortunately the rise of, of more fundamentalist responses as, as in Paisley's leadership. And, you know, it's an interesting, it's very important question why it happened and why is today, you know, we're still actually left with that question when, um, you know, why population sort of um, prone to perhaps some of them, at least, and in hardline, position uh, when they're socially vulnerable rather than, you know, joining a, a sort of labor or trade union, you know, uh, sort of stream. And I think, yeah, for Northern Ireland, it's, it's, it's still a very, actually, it's a very acute question for today. Now, Paisley's attacks against the Catholic Church and, and liberal unionists for selling out Ulster mobilized the working classes, of course, because they were familiar with this traditional religious um, discourse. Uh, but also because these discourses resonated with the experiences of an economically threatened community. So again, there's a link between why do beliefs and ideas sometimes make sense? You know, uh, it's links to material conditions in my, in my view. 
And in addition to that, of course, the civil rights movement that rose at the end of the 60s seemed to confirm uh, the danger felt among the Protestant unionist communities who were particularly, well, at least those who were particularly socially vulnerable. And perhaps also ironically, because the social actors of the, um, of the civil rights movement were very often from Catholic nationalist background who for the first time have been to university, uh, were educated, uh, so were experiencing perhaps a bit of mobility, although maybe it's a bit early to talk about mobility at the time, but they were not prepared to take the same, um, I would say take the shits, pardon my French, that their parents you know, uh, 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 took. So again, here, there's also a class dynamic that is that in the making. In this book, I also try to explain something else. Um, so that part, if you want, of my argument here is, is how we can see and analyze and explore the significance of religious ideas and beliefs and so on and symbols in connection with class relations, in connection with inequalities. Uh, and it has to be done that way. Not, we can't disconnect religion from, from the rest, from, from social structure. That's my point. But in this book, I also try to do something else. I'll try to explain the political reasons for this tendency among certain uh, uh, intellectuals and academics to portray the troubles as a question of religious ideas and beliefs. By and large, violent conflict come with pressures, censorships, attacks on professional reputations, um, sometimes threats of physical harm for academics and intellectuals. Um, mind you, this is still a bit the case today. It's obviously not as acute as it was. Um, so conflicts also have the ideological dimensions. Um, in particular, I mean, in Northern Ireland, what is very striking is, is this war of competing narratives about responsibilities, about victims, perpetrators, and it continues to rage and, and that could not have left academic thinking untouched. Okay, and you could, um, you could think about how that affected research then, you could also wonder whether it still affect research in, in some ways. So what I, what I found is that authors insisting on religion as the source of conflict in Northern Ireland tend to downplay or ignore sectarianism, um, as well as inequality and their reproduction, and sometimes even reiterate, repeat sectarian assumptions. Let me give you a, an extreme example, one author. It's the book written by um, a guy called Hickey, called Religion and the Northern Ireland Problem. The title is already a problem, you know, why Northern Ireland is a problem to, for who uh, is, is an interesting, there's a lot of exceptions already in the title. And this work has a lot of inaccuracies and weaknesses, but it's still cited as a major work about religion in Northern Ireland. Now, in this book, um, Hickey contends that the differences in terms of beliefs and doctrines between Protestantism and Catholicism are the root of the conflict. However, he focused on one specific religious feature for his argument. You wonder what, it be, what it's gonna be, right? Well, it's grace in Catholicism. Since in the Catholic Church, grace requires the ministry of a priest, he argues that the clergy, the institution, hold tremendous authority over the members of the community they serve, hence constituting what he called a frightening monolith to an outside observer. And especially for the Protestant communities because they're so attuned with you know, individual freedom and democracy. For him, the Catholic Church authoritarian um, um, character can be observed in its extreme form 
in the Republic of Ireland because it encourages also Irish nationalism and requires Protestantism to be rejected or absorbed. So of course, you know, this threat explains fears and violent reactions uh, among Protestants, justifying the latter's need to defend themselves. It's all the argumentation of this book written in 1984. So you can see here that the, this interpretation echoes with a, a very ideological repertoire that attributed the responsibility of the conflict to a religious exclusivist um, Catholic Irish uh, nationalism. Uh, what I found very interesting also in this literature is that very often Republicans or nationalists do not have a voice, okay? Had he interviewed Republicans or nationalists, he would have a very different view about what, you know, where their motivation. So here you can see how he reproduces sectarian representations that were perhaps uh, more common at the time and which are very unhelpful to say the least to understand the conflict. By the large academics focusing on the religious factor to explain uh, the troubles did not often consider the reproduction of social inequalities. And again, I go back to Steve Bruce, who, who is an amazing, great sociologist of religion. However, you know, his books on, on the region are problematic. Bruce, for example, described Protestants' uh, material advantages as, I quote, much exaggerated in subsequent myth-making and for him very unconvincing as a motivation for social mobilization and for the conflict. And he adds, I quote him again, unionists do not approve of discrimination. I'm, I'm not saying that they do, by the way, but that when interested in the argumentation. In theory, they are very much in favor of treating all people fairly. After all, that is their legacy. So here you can see that uh, a moral defense of unionism uh, takes over and probably limits the reflection, again, on sectarianism and social inequalities and their significance. And I give a lot of examples like that in this book, which all illustrate the way in which very often um, politics has infused academic knowledge. In particular, the presentation of religion as the explanation for the conflict is very often ideological, I found. It's very obvious because in the cases where the data doesn't fit with the argument, and it's ideological also because of course it dis displaces or replaces responsibility for the conflict. Okay, so hickey, for example, with grace, right? That is maybe important because we may want to think about um, uh, how those kind of, of logic may still op operate in, in political discourses and intellectual discourses today. So yeah, emphasizing religion attributes or displaces responsibility. And as such, it is a political uh, statement. But conversely, of course, the focus on inequalities or sectarian discrimination could not be devoid of political implications. How unequal was Northern Irish society, to which extent inequalities resulted from discrimination have been a moot point in social sciences and contributes to a, a, a contentious public debate, of course, that, that carries uh, heavy moral weight and resonates at the end of the day with the legitimacy of the uh, Northern Irish uh, state. It is political to address inequalities along ethno-religious divisions. It still is, I think. But at the same time, I believe it is unavoidable to address those inequalities in order to understand properly uh, Northern Irish society, its, its social division, and what perhaps religion might mean uh, for some. So to conclude, it's, it's a book, of course, about um, the troubles, it's about a book about um, the conflict and its division. It's about 
the role of religion, of course. But this book also tries to reflect on how we can study religion and its political effect. And it's a very difficult question. And finally, this is, this is also something that I'm very interested in is it addresses the context of production of scientific knowledge. Um, it's, it's about the way in which conflict political issues affect the knowledge that we produce and how we can actually reflect on this. So I hope I was not too, uh, too long uh, and it was not too dry. And I hope that, I'm sure that a lot of things I said, you, you already know, but I, I hope you can trigger a, a good chat for us. No, that was great, Fernick. Thanks very much. I love the misplaced confidence of someone who could actually write down on paper that theological disputes over grace had any sort of bearing on the, on the conflict, except among a few headbangers. Like, um, I'd say uh, there, there's plenty to discuss there, and I know I know a few of us would have questions to ask, but I'll open it up first of all. I can see that Claire already has her. Did you, Claire? Claire had her hand up. I was, I was actually clapping, but I don't mind asking the question. <laughs> Um, that was brilliant. Thanks. I'm I, just wondering the news over the past couple of days that it's looking like the um, census might show, you know, more people identifying as Catholics than Protestants in the North for the first time. And I just thought it was really interesting with this talk coming up that the discourse around that might misrepresent it and might kind of attribute meaning to it that might not necessarily be there. Do you think that, um, do you think that'll happen, I suppose? And I'm just interested in what people think around will that be taken and used as scaremonger or do you think, you know, it'll be used in a productive way? It's hard to, you know, sociologists are very bad predictors. <laughs> we don't very good to, to forecast. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be politically used because it's politically charged. What is interesting, I mean, other of my colleagues have discussed that, you know, often is it the census does a, a sort of sectarian head count and then we may easily reproduce, you know, sectarian approaches to society, because perhaps firstly, what might be, might be more important is votes. What do people vote for, rather than their, their religious background? And again, it would be interesting to see how also that connects with other significant categories. You know, what about gender? And how does that affect the makeup of this society? Why are we, you know, necessarily look at this, uh, those two categories? And then if you look at the categories, it's very complex. I'm thinking about writing an, an article based on the census with a, with a colleague, and she said, well, um, look at the Protestants, and you have to tell me how you want to aggregate. But for the Catholic Church, it's very easy. You have one group. But then for the Protestant, where are you going to put the Salvation Army, for example? You know, a huge amount of groups are that quite different as well. So, you know, we are actually very much um, distorting uh, social reality by, by doing that headcount. That's all I, I can say. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. I have a question which you may, may not be able to answer as a sociologist. You've spoken about what is fundamentally a misdiagnosis of the conflict and its causes and its legacy. So I'm just wondering, and you might, you might say that it plays out everywhere and it's quite obvious, but how does this misdiagnosis play out in sort of like public policy and the political process in, in general? I think the lack of recognition of importance of class and social inequalities is still present. I still think that, okay, it's not a sociological point of view, it's a personal point of view as, you know, involved politically, in, it's a personal opinion, but I think there is a problem of politicization or lack of among, you know, 
uh, working class, you know, loyalist communities do not necessarily think in terms of class and inequalities sometimes. And, you know, then you rely more on other top of explanation than wins, as we say. So I think, yes, it does play a massive role. You know, why, why the lack of um, Jimmy Bryson, you know, is obsessed with Colin Harvey and the nationalist network, perhaps, you know, you could look at, you know, class division resources, how they are located. So yeah, I think not, not thinking about class has huge political consequences. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does, yeah. And just like, I suppose, following on, does uh, it, like the, med- the likes of the media and, and the academics in terms of their public facing role, do they play, continue to play a role in reinforcing that misdiagnosis and misinterpretation of, of the conflict and how its legacy is planning out? I think, yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, um, definitely. Um, I, the problem with academics, it's, it's, I'll give you an example, right? I have a colleague, he's retired now, but it was probably early 80s. It was asked by the Fair Employment Agency to do a research on civil services here and to look whether, you know, you had an effect of sectarianism in, in relationship to you know salary and um, people mo- mobility in the job promotion and so on, and he did this research and he found out that when you control every factor you know statistically, yeah, there was an effect, and that effect was not a legacy issue because in the eighties it was a bit worse than it has been before. Now he presents his research in university and he takes you know shit from other people, right, and they want to publish it. And the, uh, the journal in which they had submitted in, uh, their articles contacted them, said, look, um, there's a lawyer who contacted me and, and they threatened me with legal action. We can't afford this. So, you know, how many research were not published as well? You could ask the same question today. How many, you know, the focus on, on some academics, Nicoline, like, and others, uh, you know, working on Brexit and so on, how does it affect what they feel they can say? And what also, how does that affect other colleagues watching this happening and thinking, well, I'm not going to get out and say what I'm really thinking. So there is a responsibility of academics, but you know, equally, we're, we're in, a, in a difficult position. Yeah, thanks for that. As an the academic, there's some in there. John? Here's Sean. Thanks, Veronique. That was a really, really good pricey of your book. I hope there's going to be a, a, a launch at, at Queen's, uh, get the university to pay for copious amounts of cheap wine at the very least. Um, I suppose my question or comment can be encapsulated by that lovely phrase from Brendan Bean, who said there was never a situation in the world that the addition of a copper wouldn't make any worse. Yeah. And the point that I, I completely agree that, you know, religion is not the cause of the conflict, but it's certainly an exacerbator. And it was part of the dynamics that were that was used throughout the conflict. And in particular, I'm interested in your thoughts on the idea of religious identity as a cross-class alliance, or at least part of a, an ideological, you know, structuring of a cross-class alliance. So it's not that religion was the cause, but it certainly uh, didn't help and perhaps prolonged in many respects mm-hmm. what, what we experienced here. Yeah, so it's part of the dynamic, but in uh, what I'm trying to say, and it's a very Marxist approach, okay? It's, it's that it depends on the, the social structure so that for certain ideas and beliefs and for the idea of identity to make sense, it has to be connected to your social experience in terms of accesses to resource, to, to social power, 
inequality and discrimination. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the book, I cite a section of Claire Mitchell's book, and she she quotes one of her interviewees who is uh, who has a Catholic Republican background. The guy is called Joey, I think. And Joey says, "Well, I'm, I hate religion. I really hate it. I don't, you know, and I hate religious people, and I don't want to be connected to this." However, I can't deny that I lost two jobs because of who I was, and I've been beaten in the street. And whether I like it or not, it is because I was a Catholic that. You know, I have a particular social life, a particular experience. Now, it might be true or not. This is his perception. We do, we, it doesn't matter. So religion, how does that make sense for people in some context? It's completely connected to their social experience of, of, of other things. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. You see what I mean? It's not a, 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 an autonomous factor floating that has an effect by itself. It's, it's, it can only have an, a resonance when it's attached to social structure. And it's true also for, you know, the whole, you know, as you say, cross-class alliance that you found, you know, uh, with the orange state, it, it does make sense to be uh, identified, you know, or ad to identify as a protestant, right? Because there's a lot of things that are attached to it in relationship to, to power and to access to resources and so on. Brilliant. Marxist response to a Marxist question. <laughs> <laughs> Stevie, you want in there and I think Brian wanted in. Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, I, I appreciate and I, I agree with, and I'm glad you. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, the underplaying of class analysis, of course, can be matched by an underplaying of the concept of colonialism and imperialism in, in everything you read about the conflict here. So, if imperialism doesn't exist at all anywhere, but one of the things that always intrigued me was still that that beating heart of anti-Catholicism, which still exists in parts of the Unionist family within the Protestant churches. I remember reading, and I know you'd have read it years ago. Can't get it anymore. The Moat and the Bean by Brewer. Yeah. Anti-Catholicism in Northern Ireland, apart from the problematic title, because I think it's anti-Catholicism in Northern Ireland from the 16th century, and someone should tell him that Northern Ireland didn't fucking exist in the 16th century. But leaving that to one side, I found it really interesting when I read it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, because it explained to me, I mean, some some of that deep anti-Irishness and anti-Catholicism that does play out politically, particularly over the last 20 years when the DUP have had this 20-year period when, to prove that they could share this place. And I'm wondering... Does that still matter? Does that theological doctrine of Catholics being in error and therefore going to hell, does that still play out in the minds of some of the ministers, in the minds of the Caleb Foundation, these people that, that do make party policy, that do make kind of policy in the North? Does that does it still play a function? Yeah, I appreciate it's not the dominant function, but does it still play a role in your opinion? So it's interesting you're citing this book because I think uh, John Bray is the only one who actually did write a book about anti-Catholicism and did say, look, it, it, didn't, it does matter. And I, I appreciate that book for that. I have to say, I do not really have the, um, the knowledge to say how much it affects people. But, you know, I was saying I, I worked for four years on a little congregation and people were pretty conservative, you know. Um, I didn't find they were radically, you know, rabid anti-Catholic. But of course, there was this idea that early Christianity was pure and it was a golden age. And this is the Catholic Church that just fucked it up, you know, corrupting the message and so on. And so the idea of restoring um, restoring a pure Protestant faith, it's, it's somehow to erase the Catholic mistakes, you know, in, in their case. So there's a bit of that. Does that really motivate their approach to people, I'm not really sure. I think for them, you know, they're so conservative that, you know, what matters is that 
to be reborn again and to be saved. If you're not, you go to hell. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, if you're Catholic and you're born again, well, you're born again, you know, the Catholic, can, you know, it doesn't really matter. I think, you know, they're so conservative in some ways in, at some point that they're thinking a different way. They would vote for the DUP because they, at the time, and they were against abortion and gay rights. So for them, that mattered. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think, you know, again, we go back to resources, Last time I was very struck. So, you know, I'm involved, of course, you know, in, in, in language rights at Queens. And uh, I, I was looking at when the, the scheme was announced in February that it would open. I was looking at the reaction on social media. See a bit, you know, what the arguments that people would be using against the scheme. And it was, the prejudice was a song. Can, can you explain what the scheme is, just for those that don't oh, know? Oh, yeah. That's the, sorry, we just had this product that is now launched. Uh, for uh, a residence for Irish speakers, where you know they would be speaking Irish, which is a good way to, well, actually consolidate your 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 skills and also, frankly, to normalize Irish on campus. And I remember one comment that I found extraordinary. One said, uh, maybe on you know Jimmy Bryson's um, trail, you know, on, on Twitter or something. But one said, yeah, I heard it from my own ears. Republican students, so of course, if you're an Irish speaker, you have to be Republican, will do will on purpose leave, you know, the electricity and the heating, you know, working 24 hours a day to just basically to waste the resources of the state, which actually, you know, they pay their rent, you know. And I was thinking, oh my God, how on earth could you just think this way? And this is that kind of stuff, the kind of prejudice, this those mental images that I found really interesting. But I never read anything. In those kind of uh, narrow-minded, you know, social media hero, anything about religion right, that we could say, oh, that's and you know, theological. Yeah, it sounds like we need to continuously update our our understanding of of the role of religion and how it connects to that sort of material, those material conditions and and political processes. Brian, did you want to come in there? Or you just stroking your beard. I was approaching the, the, the question really from a slightly different. Uh, <clears throat> historical context from Stevie to an extent, and I was looking back to uh, 1791, whenever we've told how to write the argument on behalf of Catholics in Ireland. And it's a bit like the, the grace issue, because at that time there were progressive Protestants who were saying they wanted their own parliament, and at the grave independence, who were saying that Catholics can't embrace liberty because of the church. Um, and therefore, the priest will always decide what their politics are. And I, I suppose at the moment that, you know, they used to, you know, that was brought right up to date in the 1960s and 70s with a pre, the, the Free State or the Irish Republic or Republic of Ireland, rather, was a, was a priest-ridden country. Whereas it's a, bit, it's, it's a bit, it seems very much that the North is more priest-ridden than the, than the South is at the moment. You know, you, that, that sort of, there's been that sort of influence and colouring of politics uh, with those, I suppose, fundamental religious differences. And, I, you know, the, the question is, I mean, you still see signs of that, so you do, and I think to some extent that's how, how some of the Protestant paramilitaries were able to justify their some of their actions because they weren't really dealing with people. They were dealing with people, as, as, uh, although they wouldn't have known the theological elements of it, they were dealing with people who were in error and who couldn't be saved. So, when not being the cause of the conflict, 
what does Veronique think about you know how those sort of religious differences and issues sort of color and influence the sort of current uh, the current com conflict and it still is a conflict of course it's just quite down again I, I still think that those differences are only made significant because they were attached in particular at the time with different treatment with different access to well to everything you know to political power to employment to housing uh, they become important because they attach to those differences yeah i always look a bit you know what some loyalists are tweeting sometimes to see whether you know you have religious elements and you know not really i mean apart from i don't know if you noticed that but um in one of those um marches against the protocol you have this guy with a texan hat and so everybody was starting to look who is that and it was a guy from texas called rusty thomas i mean a wonderful name of all who is a, a, a part of a, actually the leader of a very violent anti-abortion movement in the united states but that was kind of ridicule so uh, yeah I, mean, I, I really don't know whether you know it it, it remains quite important but you know it also fluctuates it may change it would be interesting to see whether it, it gets traction, but I'm not sure it will. We have a couple more questions to take, and then we'll look to bring things to a close. Kelly, I think you had Kelly Turtle. I think you had your hand up first. Kelly, you've obviously done a lot of work with faith communities and research with them. So, did you have a question or comment? Yeah, well, it's great to hear about your work, Veronica, and um, I am working a lot with trying to engage genuinely with faith narratives and faith discourse when it comes to abortion rights but my question was really about the scholarship that you have um engaged with in your book some of it's quite old like Hickey's book is old and to my knowledge not widely cited anymore and has been heavily critiqued Claire's book is about 16 years old now and was written very early in her career is there anything more recent that we can look to I, I find it hard to believe there's been no more in the years that have even you know from the agreement because I know from working in praxis as well, you know, my practice in terms of community relations would be that I don't really know anybody out in the field who genuinely believes that religion is the base of the conflict. Well, sometimes the agenda of the community relations funding can, can narrow and constrict things. I don't know any actual practitioners who really believe that. I think everybody's working in a holistic way and, and and very much looking at social inequality as as the primary driver yeah it's interesting uh yeah it's an, an interesting question an important one i think that after claire's book then john brewer and gladys Gagnon worked on conflict resolution and the role of you know faith groups in, into this or lack of you know significance depending um but basically that was all yeah, I don't think there were anything written very much about about religion since then. And and you know, even for the sake of the interest for you know religious life of people, it hasn't been really done. Despite the fact that I think it would be quite interesting, you know. And for example, in relationship to reproduction rights, um, I think it is an important question. You know, does gender and class and and observance, do, how does that play a role? You know, so. It's interesting that suddenly no one is interested anymore about religion in Northern Ireland. I think, what does it tell us? You know, uh, actually, it's 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 a it's a very good uh, observation. Yeah. And uh, uh, Owen Davy. Right. Okay. Uh, most of these, well, quite a few of us know me anyway. I come from a, a working class, trade unionist uh, background, but I had led on a so-called interface 
peacefully, you know. During one of the strikes that I was involved in, we, we had, because of those Catholic and Protestants supporting one another, we had a march up the shangle and down the falls. Sean, we, we, got, uh, we got whistles from the Ulster Souvenir Shop on the Shankar Road. They knew where we were coming from, and it was an answer, Catholic and Protestant, to try and win a strike. We got Lombard drums from an orange, uh, from Antrim in it. We look at social issues and that class issues. We can't come together. We can't work together. We've shown that it can be done. Uh, how can we build on that going forward? Because unfortunately, that has a job of work we've got to do. How do you think that we can build on that going forward? Well, if I had the answer, I, I suppose I wouldn't be a, a lecturer in sociology, but I get I, I get a much better paid job somewhere. You know, it's a it's a twenty you know twenty billion question, I suppose. Um, it's not again. It's, it's more personal opinion, as you know, in being involved in uh, and interested in politics here, rather than a sociological, you know, evidence based approach. And I think you will probably agree. I don't think the the power sharing structure that is supposed to govern this region works and I don't think it can work and I think we would continue to perpetuate you know obsession with you know sector and headcount and competing for the vote of, of ethno-religious communities no we need a we need, we need a different structure I think because you know the, the, the competition is organized and is maintained yeah we need a we we, we need a, a a new social political structure I think you're, you're right. Some of those things are starting to unravel. That's a big question we're going to continue kind of grapple with. Like it's apt though, on that you, you brought us to close on the question of class unity and the vision of the United Irishmen. Like, so we'll thank you for that. I just want to thank Veronique for her lightning talk and her responses to, to some brilliant questions. We really would encourage people to pick up a copy of her book and we'll look forward to the Queen's book launch Free Villa Vance, red wine. What else do you promise, John? Mm. A lot. It works. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that and uh, we'll be sure to promote it when it when it does happen. Uh, but we would really encourage people to pick up the book. Well, thank everybody for, for getting up there evening to, to join us tonight. I thought it was a really valuable discussion, like, and it's one that will continue going forward. Um, so thanks to everyone and thanks especially to Veronique again. It was a pleasure. And um, if you look for the book, they might still be copy for sale in um, the Cultoland because uh, we did a bit uh, mm. of, of a launch a few weeks ago, but we may do another launch at Queen's. Who knows? Thank you very much for the interesting chat. Thanks to Thanks everyone. Thanks to Cheers. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the Victory Parade. Up the workers and slang of foil. <laughs>